On this episode of the Practical Guidance Labor and Employment Series, we continue our conversation with attorney Anthony Ansidi. Tony is co-chair of the Labor and Employment Group at Proskauer Rose, where he works from the Los Angeles office. If you did not check out last month's interview with Anthony about arbitration in labor and employment claims, please do. In today's companion episode, we will discuss the rise of recent runaway juries. We'll look at the recent trend of extraordinarily high single plaintiff jury awards in L&E litigation. I'm your host, Kevin Hilton. I'm an attorney with LexisNexis. To learn more about LexisNexis Practical Guidance Research Solutions, visit Lexis.com. Lexis Practical Guidance gives you insights to support what you do. Tony, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me for the Practical Guidance Labor and Employment Podcast today. I wonder if you'd start by just reminding some of the listeners about your practice. I am uh, uh, a partner at the law firm Proskauer Rose. Uh, I'm based in Los Angeles, and uh, I'm one of the co-chairs of the Labor and Employment Department at Proskauer. Uh, I'm primarily engaged in um, litigation and advice counseling and other related uh, services associated with labor and employment issues uh, in California and elsewhere around the country. Thank you so much again, Anthony. Uh, we're going to be speaking a little bit today about um, the topic of runaway juries, and which is, I, I know, something that your firm has been writing about on its blog and uh, studying to a great extent. Um, there have been as I understand it, there have been some pretty recent cases where there have been some relatively sizable um, punitive uh, damage amounts um, coming through in California. Uh, and uh, we were going to talk a little bit about that today. So in context, I guess we could, or would you just mind mentioning one or two that you think were kind of landmarks recently um, in this space? Sure. Um, there have been, as you say, several, uh, and I would say uh, this has been um, a recurring phenomenon, uh, a significant recurring phenomenon over at least the last two to five years. Uh, it certainly has spanned and included jury verdicts that have come out uh, since the pandemic. I don't know if there's a relationship there or not, uh, but some of the most um, sort of eye-popping verdicts have occurred in the last um, several years. And when I say eye-popping verdicts, I'm talking about cases involving one or two plaintiffs. Most of them uh, that we'll be talking about involve just a single uh, employee. So these are not class action uh, uh, verdicts. These are not collective action verdicts where you've got hundreds or thousands of employees involved. This is a single person who has filed a lawsuit against his or her employer. Uh, and is claiming often uh, some form of discrimination, harassment, uh, or that they have been a victim of retaliation. Perhaps they claim they're a whistleblower. Um, That's what these kinds of cases have uh, included. Most of them have come from either uh, the uh, courts in Los Angeles or in the Bay Area. Uh, And uh, many of them uh, are at a level that we had not seen previously for single plaintiff verdicts. Uh, What am I talking about? Well, uh, perhaps the the one that got the most um, attention when it came down, not only because of its size, but also because of the company involved, Tesla. Uh, There was in October of 2021, 
so a little bit over a year and a half ago or so, a um, verdict against Tesla on behalf of a black employee who uh, claimed that he was the victim of uh, a hostile work environment. He claimed that there were swastikas and the N-word uh, drawn and uh, those words were used, the word, the N-word was used in the workplace. And um, he had been a short-term employee. He'd only been there for uh, about a year or less. Uh, he was an elevator operator there. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what an elevator operator is in the 21st century, and especially at a high-tech company such right. as Tesla, but that, that was what his job was. Uh, he was not fired. He quit, claiming that it was because of the hostile work environment. And a San Francisco jury uh, awarded him $137 million. Um, wow. This this was a significant uh, verdict, obviously. Uh, I think it, it, it has since been reduced, and there's been post-trial activity in the case. I think the case probably will end up getting retried, uh, at least as to damages. And... Um, uh, perhaps related or unrelated, about a week after that verdict came down, um, uh, Elon Musk uh, announced that Tesla was moving its uh, headquarters from California to yeah. Austin, Texas, which presumably is where it is today. Uh, again, I don't know if that was related, but I'm certainly uh, fairly clear on the on the uh, assumption that whatever happened in that trial did not uh, dissuade uh, Mr. Musk from moving right. his company from California to another state. Yeah, and I'm I, I'm looking at these some of these other verdicts that you mentioned in addition to the Tesla one, uh, multiple within which is I guess what brought about these articles that you all have written, um, and multiple in the high hundred million dollar ranges, which is mind boggling for single plaintiffs. Um, yeah, and we had, and like I say, we've we've been watching these verdicts, you know, fairly carefully for probably over a decade, and. Every once in a while, you would get um, a, a verdict that would flare out like this. That would be, you know, high tens of millions of dollars, or even a couple, a couple that were a, a, a more than a hundred million. But I think there were only one or two. Uh, we've had this phenomenon now over the last few years, uh, where uh, it has become something more more frequent than a black swan event as they say yeah uh meaning that it, it it does happen i think with greater frequency than anybody would have expected um and you know whenever i talk about these things or write about these things people typically react and say oh well that can't stand that's ridiculous there's no way that will survive the answer to that observation is yes that's correct in almost all of these cases uh what will happen is a judge you know, the sitting trial judge uh, will have a post-trial motion and will reduce the verdict, especially if the punitive damages are um, so far out of whack with the underlying compensatory damages. Um, but oftentimes when a judge does that, they will do it conditionally saying that the, uh, the, the court will reduce the verdict or the plaintiff can have a new trial if the plaintiff doesn't want to accept uh, the reduced verdict, and in almost all these cases, when they when they hit the lottery like this, um, the the plaintiff will reject the reduced amount uh, and may appeal. And and also in many of those cases, the defendant appeals also, even after uh, the judge tries to adjust the the verdict. So uh, that's typically what happens if, for whatever reason, at the trial court level, it can't be resolved. Then it will go up on appeal, uh, or some of the cases actually might get settled because the trial 
the trial lawyer may know that there really isn't going to be uh, any chance of of keeping a verdict that is so far out of um, uh, step with the compensatory damages. Because what happens in most of these cases, it's the punitive damages uh, overhang that really uh, throws these these numbers so far up on the chart. Right. And, and, and why are these single plane employment verdicts now so high, do you feel? It, it may be... Um, you know, the correlation causation conundrum that we all uh, think about from time to time. I, I, it does seem to correlate with at least the pandemic. I don't know if it's been caused by the pandemic, uh, that there is um, there are grouchier juries out there right. who are um, uh, less less likely to um, uh, sanction information that they're getting about the way in which employees claim to be treated in the workplace. Uh, Almost all of these cases involve some element of discrimination or harassment, which in today's sure. society, quite correctly, is not uh, viewed yeah. favorably, quite obviously. Uh, and then juries in large urban areas, for the most part, I mean, this has been a, a phenomenon for, for many, many years, even before the verdict started spiking like this. I mean, they tend to uh, identify, uh, at least at first blush, with the plaintiff. I mean, very few of them are business owners. Very few of them have ever been in a supervisorial position. Uh, many of themselves, many of them themselves, may have been terminated or may have sure. experienced something in the workplace that was unpleasant or they didn't like. Um, and so there's sort of a built-in bias, I think, uh, in favor of employees who you know, have a fairly predictable formula in terms of what their lawyers say and do in front of those juries to get them to get excited about uh, awarding large amounts. You referenced the, the punitive side to these damages as being a, a, a large chunk of these huge awards. I guess, what are the component parts of a giant verdict uh, such as these then? Yeah, it's, and it's, it, again, it's fairly, um, easy to break it down. There aren't many component parts. Uh, the first part in most of these cases, because many of them involve terminations or cases as in the Tesla case where the employee has quit. So there's been a cessation of employment. So the first element is almost always lost wages. Uh, and the uh, employee will be claiming and will be attempting to prove often through uh, not only his or her own testimony, but also through the testimony of an expert economist, uh, whatever uh, past wages they have lost up to the time of the trial. Um, so that's back wages, obviously, uh, past lost wages. A and then the employee also is entitled, if they've not yet found a job, as is often the case, or at least they've not found a job that pays as well or has as uh, um, uh, good of benefits, uh, they will also seek future lost wages, that is the differential between what they're currently earning, if they're earning anything, uh, and what they might have earned and what they might have continued to uh, accrue in the form of benefits had they remained employed. And that's right. a little bit of a speculative exercise, but that's, that's kind of what the experts will be there for. And they will look at things such as work-life expectancy. Uh, they'll look at the trajectory of the employee's increases in pay in the past. Uh, they'll look at increases in bonuses and stock options if those things are part of it. And they'll load in as much as they possibly can, both in terms of past uh, lost wages as well as the present value of future lost wages. Um, so that's the number one element. The second element, uh, and this is where things start to get a little exciting for the plaintiff's lawyers, uh, right. is emotional distress damages. And in each and every one of these cases, they will claim that the, there are emotional distress damages that accompany uh, the, uh, 
the, the bad acts that they claim the employer engaged in, and they will, in 99.9% .9 of these cases, have not only the employee uh, and perhaps their family testify about how the termination or how the discrimination may have affected them, but they will bring in um, expert witnesses on that as well. Uh, these are expert psychologists who uh, often spend very little, if any time, uh, actually uh, performing services as a psychologist and almost in all cases are professional witnesses who will come in uh, and they will testify about um, how badly uh, affected the employee is by this. Uh, theoretically, a, a you know a a professional voice, an objective voice. It's really anything but that. Um, right. Telling the jury how how emotionally distraught the employee is, and you know their testimony will be such as you know something along the following lines that the employee is a shattered shell of a human being uh can't eat can't drink can't uh, recognize their own children uh sits in a darkened room all day i'm i'm obviously exaggerating right right, right and to right. be fair i have to say that there are expert witnesses on the defense side both for the economics uh for the lost wages but also for the psychology aspect of this and the defense witnesses oftentimes also are professional witnesses and aren't really clinical sure. uh, people and they'll come in and say no this isn't the worst thing that ever happened to this person in fact there were other stressors in their life uh in fact you know there's you know the kinds of things that they've done since then uh oftentimes there's social media that right. tells a different story uh many of the plaintiff's lawyers by the way are onto that now and what we'll find is as soon as they file one of these cases or even when they're just contemplating it, suddenly all the social media yeah, of the prospective dark. employee, yeah, it just, it goes dark completely. It all gets scrubbed, it all gets pulled down. Now, by the way, we we seek that often and we we are actually actually able to get that in many cases. So that's that's a temporary solution. Uh, but that's that's another sort of um, 21st century uh, place in which we fight, fight these battles in terms of getting that information. Uh, because a lot of employees tell one story in, in their depositions and their psychiatry and psychologists tell that same story, but their social media has a completely different right, take right. as they're uh, celebrating in Waikiki Beach. Right. Um, <laughs> so um, th those are the first two major components. And then things really, really get interesting. Uh, then the jury may be asked, uh, often is, uh, whether they believe that there has been sufficient malice, oppression, or fraud, kind of an unusual uh, formulation, but those are the uh, words from the statute. Uh, really, malice is probably the most common uh, element of this. And the jury okay. is asked uh, it, just a yes or no question whether they believe that there is sufficient malice, let's say, that was proven by the plaintiff by clear and convincing evidence, which is uh, a higher standard of proof uh, than typically applies in a civil case yeah. uh it's 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 more than a preponderance of the evidence that it's less right. than a beyond reasonable doubt somewhere in the middle between those two standards uh, between the civil standard and the and the criminal standard um and if the jury is upset enough about what happened uh they will answer yes to that question yes there was malice that the, uh, they believe that an individual or the company itself acted maliciously um the next then phase of the trial if they do in fact find uh, liability and that's when they first award the lost wages and the emotional stress damages is for them to go and deliberate first to hear evidence about and then deliberate about uh, whether there should be punitive damages uh, heaped on top of the verdict. And the way that works is, and this is, I think, a failing in the system. The jury is not told that there are constitutional limits on how much 
the punitive damage uh, mm-hmm. amount can be. And this comes from both the United States Supreme Court and very recent authority, as well as the California Supreme Court. Um, punitive damages, that is the multiple of the first two numbers, the lost wages and the emotional stress damages, generally should not be more than two, three, maybe four, four times the underlying verdict. But a jury, for whatever reason in our system, is never told that. Uh, all they're told is, boy, this employer was bad. Uh, this employer um, engaged in malicious behavior. There's only one thing this employer understands. They make the same argument every single time, and that right. is money. And the only way you can send a message to this employer is by uh, hitting them with monetary penalties in the form of punitive uh, damages. Um, and and then they're also told how much money the company has and how much money the company has in terms of net revenue and how much company has in terms of profits. I'm sure they heard all about that in the Tesla case. Right. And they say, look, all we're asking, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, is just three days of profits or one right. one thousandth of Elon Musk's net worth or whatever it may be, which sounds like a pretty reasonable amount until you break that down into dollars. And then suddenly you're in the $100 million range right? Uh, and uh, the verdict uh, comes tumbling forth. A verdict which, by the way, as I said, cannot stand because it exceeds those constitutional limits. So I, I think somebody should in the legislature, and I don't think it'll ever happen in California, of course, because of a number of other factors uh, in terms right. of the, the uh, clubbiness between the trial lawyers and the California legislature, but a, a judge should be able to instruct a jury about right. how much, if any, punitive damages are constitutionally permissible. I think defendants are reluctant to talk about this because if you say two, three, five, or eight, the actual you know, maximum speed limit, if you will, is 10. No, no right. defense lawyer wants to get up there and say that to a jury because sure. all you're going to do is be providing a red flag for yeah. them to be uh, go high going after exactly. <laughs> right, so, right. so, so employers don't talk about it uh, in these cases, and the plaintiffs' lawyers don't want to talk about it either because, from their perspective, they consider that to be a floor, not a ceiling. Uh, so, uh, nobody talks about it, and so the juries, you know, you can't really blame them. They're not really given the guidance that I think they should be given, and so as a result, they end up coming forth with these really ridiculous verdicts, which everybody in the law knows can't stand that are, you know, literally in unconstitutional under both federal and state law. Uh, but that's, that's kind of the way the game works. And, and sort of the kicker here is if there's insurance as there often is yeah. uh, in these cases, insurance companies don't cover punitive damages. So uh, the insurance company may cover the lost wages. The insurance company may cover uh, some or all of the emotional distress, but they will not cover the punitive damages. And so that's all on the employer, and uh, that can be a that oftentimes is the dog and not the tail. That's remarkable that there is no shape given to the how high they should be allowed to go. And, and, I, I and, agree. and I get why. I get why you're saying it is yeah. politics, basically. And uh, that no, I think if it if it got yeah. solved, and again, I have no no, <laughs> no present Cre- view belief, that it right. will be. Um, <laughs> if it got solved, it would have to be in the form of a jury instruction. I mean, the the, the, yeah. the judge reads the jury a whole bunch of instructions before they make any decision on all of this. Uh, and, you know, I think they tune out a lot for a lot of those instructions because they can be quite thick and uh, difficult to follow and they are convoluted oftentimes. But when you get to this issue of punitive damages, I, I, I think a, a judge, you know, I would say as a defense lawyer should say, if you find there is malice, oppression, or fraud by clear and convincing evidence, uh, you may award 
punitive damages in this case, but those punitive damages should not exceed, exceed yeah. you know, more than two or three times the amount of emotional distress and lost wages that you have already uh, decided to uh, award the plaintiff in this case. That, and, and of course, the plaintiff's lawyers would go nuts if that if that if a judge were right. to say Don't that. Don't forget eight. Don't forget eight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly right <laughs> exactly so it's it's just it and so it really is like i said you can't really blame the juries because they're yeah. the decision makers yeah. yet no one's told them the rules so it's a very bizarre situation that as far as i know no one's ever really um really sort of drilled down on and tried to figure out a way to fix it the other thing i should say is that with respect to the since we're sort of doing this analysis of what the components are yeah. oftentimes if the jury is upset enough uh, with the employer as clearly it was in the Tesla case and some of these other big verdicts that we've been talking about. Um, they will they will not wait until they get to the punitive damages uh, stage to unload on the employer. And what I mean by that is they may say, because there aren't any real restrictions on this either, and I think this would be another <laughs> avenue for reform if anybody cares. Uh, uh, and that is there's really no limitation at all. I said there's a 10x or you know three or five right. X limit on punitive damages. There's no limit on emotional stress damages. Right. So oftentimes what that is is the plaintiff's lawyer getting up there and just you know putting his or her finger in their mouth, putting it up in the wind and say, I think we could probably uh receive 10 or five or seven or nine million dollars in emotional stress damages here. What do you think, ladies and gentlemen of the jury? And they're like, yeah, okay. Uh, there's there's no way, and it, it's very difficult, obviously, to translate, even if there is actual emotional distress that has come from uh, this this uh, employment situation, to then translate that into dollars. Uh, right. and, and, and one of the biggest uh, gripes I have with the uh, verdict form, there's a, there's a standard verdict form that every jury gets on this, is they... Remember, I told you with respect to lost wages, they're asked first, what are the all the lost wages to date? That is through that date sure. of trial. And then what are the future lost wages that are anticipated? What's the present value of that? Well, one of the things the plaintiff's lawyers obviously slipped in when they were um, taking part in the drafting of these uh, sure. verdict forms yeah. is yeah. another two questions. And one is uh, past non-economic loss, including physical pain and mental suffering, past non-economic loss, including physical pain, mental suffering. Every jury in California hears that question. And then future non-economic loss, including physical pain, mental suffering. So the jury actually is asked, figure out if you can, and I think it's a difficult question to answer, how much uh, this emotional distress this employee claims to have had up to this date how much is that right. worth? Now, try to figure out how much the dollar value of the future emotional distress might be in this case. And wow. I think that really does ask the jury to do something that no one can do. Uh, and there's actually been some recent case law on this, which I was very happy to see, where the court said, well, in a case where the employee wins uh, and they're in, they're, they get maybe not even $100 million, but maybe they get $5 million or $7 million or whatever. Sure. That's a validation that they were right and the employer was wrong. It's very hard to say, and therefore they're probably going to still continue to incur emotional distress from here on out. Um, that would be something that might happen if there had never been a trial or if the trial had taken place and the employee had lost. But this court said, I think really quite intelligently, and I hadn't seen that before, uh, well, what happens if the employee wins the case, gets past emotional distress damages, 
can you really say they're going to get another three or five or eight million dollars worth of punitive I'm sorry emotional distress damages going forward after they won the case it just that just defies logic right, right. but as sense. you can see all of this is really almost um uh you know it's angels on the head of a pin trying to figure out what these numbers can or should be right. uh and it's just it's a, it's just the factor that exists in the system so i would again if if, if, if i got to be king for a day i would i would try to <laughs> Uh, again, um, make a jury instruction or a verdict form that takes into account, if you find in favor of this employee, um, that should be satisfaction enough. Right. Yeah. Uh, and maybe maybe the future, present value of future emotional distress, whatever that even is, uh, shouldn't be as high because, uh, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you have determined that this employee actually was wronged uh, right. in the way they claim uh, in this case. So there's clearly some real desire to get a sticky emotional distress claim because it is going to have potentially a stronger chance of surviving. And, and the phenomenon that I'm talking about there is that the punitive element to a verdict creeps in to the emotional distress damages. Uh, and that's what's particularly dangerous for uh, an employer, because those are much harder, the punitive damage, sorry, the emotional distress, emotional distress damages right. element is much harder to challenge, because there are no real standards for what past emotional distress damages should equate to future emotional distress damages should equate to. Uh, and so that's more bulletproof, both at the post trial motion stage in the trial court and also on appeal so yes a smart plaintiff's lawyer is going to try to dump as much of the damage done to the employer into the lost wages component and into okay. the emotional distress damages component because those are more uh, durable and less likely to be reversed at the trial court level uh, and or at the uh, at the appellate level, simply because there aren't the same kinds of constitutional standards that we have for punitive damages. So in another, you know, element of the one of the opinions I mentioned earlier, when the court talked about future emotional stress damages after the employee wins, the court also did something which I thought was really interesting. They they broke down the amount of emotional distress damages, the total and divided it by the number of days that the employee uh, had gone since the termination uh, had occurred and hmm. said this amount of emotional stress damages per day, and I can't remember what it was, maybe it was 3,000 or 2,000 or whatever it was, right. is ridiculously high. This is yeah. just ridiculously high that nobody, that, that given in that case, the, 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 the court basically said that the employee got on the, the, the stand and cried a bit, said that, you know, felt like he had some sleepless nights and whatever. And the court said, none of that really sounds that extreme or extraordinary. Uh, and that isn't really worth, at least in the court's view, the appellate court's view, um, more than X thousand per day. And so I thought that was another interesting way of looking at it, where you just take this giant number, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars in emotional distress damages, divide that by the number of days and say, is this really worth $7,000 a day? Is that how much this employee really suffered in a day? But again, right. this is treacherous ground for a defense lawyer 
uh, to say, because if you say, gee, $7,000 a day is too much, the employee, right. or the jury may very well say, well, how about 4,000? Right. <laughs> you know? and, and if you had never said that, they might've said, how about 500? So yeah. uh, it, it's, it's a very treacherous uh, place to be for a defense lawyer. And obviously it's, it's a, it's a, it's a delightful um, hunting ground for every good plaintiff's yeah. lawyer. So this is a loaded question, but so what has been the result of these verdicts? Because I think we're hearing some of the results and how they've been reduced, but what, what are some of the results, I guess? Well, I, I'm surprised that there hasn't been more of a reaction uh, to this. Huh. I mean, I, I, again, I, the legislature in California and our governor will turn a deaf ear to any of this. They don't care at all uh, what what happens with respect to these kinds of verdicts. Uh, so nothing's going to happen from the legislative uh, branch. Nothing's going to come from the executive branch uh, to, to save employers in all these kinds of situations, even though Elon Musk and hundreds of other <laughs> companies are fleeing the state. I, I heard again today that there's there still remains a shortage of U-Hauls leaving the state of California. Uh, but for whatever reason, no, some people at least are not connecting some of what we're talking about here with some of that. Um, and I'm sure it's not all or really even maybe mostly attributable to what we're talking about here, but I think it goes into the mix. Um, uh, some of the courts, like I say, some of the courts are beginning to react and there are only one or two, but there are at least one or two opinions now from the California Court of Appeal, the intermediate court in California, uh, that has looked at this and has really sort of trained an eye on these these verdicts and is, I think, beginning to provide a little hope. I don't know that anything's going to come from the California Supreme Court. I've not seen anything from them, and I suspect uh, there's not going to be any help from, from right. that body either. Um, uh, the, the real reaction is for those employers that are watching this, and I and I don't mean to suggest that people should be in you know panic mode over this because I don't think it is something that happens every day, but it does happen with some frequency. Um, I think that some employers are beginning to look at something I've been talking about and that you and I have talked about previously, yeah. and that is arbitration agreements. Something mm -hmm. that I think is really, at the end of the day, the only antidote to this kind of phenomenon that we're seeing in the in front of juries and that is unfortunately juries uh, in in some of these cases just are are engaged in malpractice by right. oh, led down the garden path obviously by plaintiff's lawyers uh but they are they're coming up with verdicts that just don't make any sense i mean when you talk about you know a quarter of a billion dollars uh in some cases even higher than that yeah. uh, awards to single plaintiffs in these cases for a single termination uh you know companies will just i mean before they have a chance to leave the state they will go bankrupt you just cannot be in a situation where someone is facing hundreds of millions or or maybe even a quarter billion dollars in potential liability in these cases and there literally is no other antidote than arbitration 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 right. arbitration uh, i think it is the only it is the only answer to these uh questions don't get me wrong arbitration is not a panacea as we've discussed in the past yeah uh, there are a lot of downsides to arbitration and as i may have said previously so i may be being redundant but i i say about arbitration what churchill said about democracy, which is it's the worst system in the world, except for all the others. Uh, and I think that is true of arbitration, the worst system of, in the world, except for all the others. And one of the others <laughs> happens to be civil trials in front of juries who are, uh, as I say, in a particularly cranky mood these days. Are you anticipating that one other result of these verdicts is that there is going to be an like a further onslaught of, of case law? Oh, yes, absolutely. And, and we see it all the time because, you know, we, we're all 
in, in the in the legal business at least fairly familiar with the fact that upwards of 80 to 90 percent of cases settle they don't go right. to trial they don't ever get in front of a jury there's never uh you know never a, a beginning even of a trial in, in most of these cases but these kinds of verdicts filter through to the settlement discussions and the settlement yeah. demands and the settlement negotiations and so and, and we see it all the time now especially with especially by the way if you're up against one of the lawyers who has rung the bell as they say right. uh, with one of these cases They'll say, yeah, okay, we don't need to settle. I've, I've actually had some of the best plaintiff's lawyers, you know, we're, we'll be in a mediation and the mediator will suggest that we talk head to head with the opposing counsel. And, you know, they'll look at their shiny pinky ring and they'll say, you know, not, not all cases settle. Some right. cases just have to go to trial. We, uh, we're trial lawyers. We're ready to go to trial. And it's, you know, it's, it's a, you know, that's just, <laughs> I don't blame them. That's what no. their great leverage yeah. is. And every time one of these things happens, uh, you know, it's no, it's no coincidence that they call the LA Superior Court at 111 North Hill Street, the bank. Uh, mm -hmm. And so when, when, when they're, when they're thinking of going to the bank to get a new deposit, um, they, uh, and I'm quoting them, by the way, that's not what the defense, right, right, right. that's not from the defense <laughs> lawyers. That's what the plaintiff's right, lawyer calls right. the LA Superior Court. Um, what, what, when they know that the alternative to settling the case uh, is going to trial in a couple of years and maybe again, ringing the bell uh, at, at doesn't have to be 10 million. It could be 5 million for a single plaintiff who's making sure. $50,000 a year. Um, that's, that's incentive enough uh, to, to do that. And do uh, I'm actually frankly surprised more plaintiff's lawyers and I probably shouldn't be saying this because it's, it's not beneficial necessarily <laughs> right. to my, my clients, that, that they settle anything. There are some, uh, again, yeah. some plaintiff's lawyers, uh, some of the best who don't settle anything. They don't care. They do not care what the facts are. They don't care what the chances are of you're getting summary judgment for, you know, summary adjudication of eight of the nine claims. As long as they can creep past the, the summary judgment motion, which is, you know, the, the primary weapon we have right. to prevent a case from getting to trial because it doesn't, yeah. doesn't meet have the legal merit. requirements. Yeah. Uh, right. Um, but if they can get past that summary judgment motion and they can get to trial, that's Valhalla for them. And they can convince a jury, oftentimes if they're talented enough and they've done enough of them, uh, that the jury needs to really, um, you step know, up. help help them step up, help them, <laughs> yeah. help their client, send a message, you know, send, you know, the only message they understand is money, blah, blah, blah. That that That's all they're looking for. And they're not interested in settling cases. And um most plaintiffs lawyers still are fairly reasonable and you know they're I, I think because they're just used to not trying cases but I don't know if I were a plaintiff's lawyer I think I would probably adopt some version of that strategy which is yeah we don't settle cases we try cases uh, and all these cases are contingency cases meaning that the employees the former employees are not paying any attorney's fees they're not paying any costs that's sure. all getting fronted for them by the lawyers and then the lawyers will take oftentimes 30 35, 40, I have heard as much as 50% of whatever the employee recovers. Um, that's the last element, by the way, that we didn't talk about, which isn't recorded yeah. in any of the statistics. The plaintiff's lawyers, if there's a violation of statute, which provides for recovery of attorney's fees, as many of them do in the discrimination mm -hmm. and harassment and wage and hour area, they can not only get verdicts uh, in these, um, these uh, amounts, but they can also separately then go in and get their attorney's fees. Uh, and that oftentimes, if the case has gone through trial, will be a seven-figure amount as well. And that gets heaped wow. on top of all of the other amounts that we've talked about.
And there are no limitations then on the percentages that are being for these contingency cases that are being charged in these. I'm surprised because at yeah. least in some jurisdictions, I know that they do try to keep plaintiff's lawyers to the 33%, which yeah, is, that's what had I always been the standard right. that, that I knew. And then I don't know who somewhere along <laughs> the line, somebody got the idea to <laughs> increase it from 33 to 40%. And now, as I say, oftentimes what they do is they have a structured arrangement with the client, which again, these are not usually sophisticated um, people who have engaged in transactions like right. this with a lawyer before. So they may not know. Uh, and it'll say something like, you know, we'll get a third or we'll get 40% unless the case settles within 30 days of trial or 45 days of trial and or goes to trial, in which case we'll get 50%, meaning that it steps up the closer they are to trial. I mean, that has logical, that has logical reasons behind it, obviously, because there's a lot more work that needs to be done right before the trial. And cases do sometimes settle the day before trial or whatever. But when you're talking about getting 50%, plus on top of that, attorney's fees that I don't believe every plaintiff's lawyer bears those attorney's fees that they get separately with their client. I think some of them actually take the 50% and then also take 100% of the attorney's fees that are awarded by the court, which uh, in every case will mean that the lawyer will end up with more money than the client. Uh, wow. just, I mean, that's just the way the math works. Tony, thank you again so much for your time and all the insight you've provided today. To learn more about Tony's practice at Proskauer, visit the firm's website at proskauer.com. As a note, if you're enjoying these podcasts, please subscribe or follow the Labor and Employment Practice Series series podcast that you're listening to right now. Lexus is also offering a monthly rotating practice area series as well as a data privacy and cybersecurity practice area series. All of these practical guidance podcasts can be found through your favorite podcast provider. And remember, no matter your practice area, if you need practical guidance on how to proceed in your work, Check out Lexus' practical guidance research solution, available now through Lexus. For more information, visit Lexus.com. Thanks, and be well.